Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. Barry is with me on Skype there in Johannesburg and we're going to tackle our audio-only approach again. How's it going, Chad? It's good to, good to be here and happy Easter. We'll pass over to everyone who's celebrating. I hope you've had a great weekend with yeah. your families and that you've eaten lots of chocolate. Indeed. I mean, best time for that chocolate. Uh, those lint chocolate bunnies definitely didn't last any time in my household at all. How about you, Barry? <laughs> Did you uh, control it or just kind of went crazy dude this is the never-ending battle with these things i can't control myself i get like a whole bunch of eggs and i'm like oh let's have one a day one a day three hours later they're all gone it's terrible oh gosh well you know where you are it's across the pond so we were just having a quick conversation before we started recording and i was just saying how i mentally am starting to kind of tune off from all of the COVID-19 information overload, um, which I think is fairly natural, Barry, as well. Um, you know, how, how are you finding it? Obviously, as we're progressing, um, you know, in the beginning, it was right at the forefront of everything we, we could kind of think about. Um, but at the moment, I think we're now starting to get more into the wellness side of it and, and just starting to kind of take care of ourselves a, a bit better. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that all of the information is quite mentally taxing. I think everyone has been feeling it over the last couple of weeks. Like, there's so much to, to look at. There's so much research and numbers and chaos going on. And uh, at some point, you've actually got to kind of tune out a little bit. And so we've been talking off, off air about trying to look at things once a day and then let the rest of the day be for yourself and yeah. working on things that matter to you. And I think that's important. I think that if you get caught in that news cycle too much, you can start to feel really overwhelmed and really exhausted. And that's kind of how I feel, to be honest. Yeah, no, fair enough. And it's a natural reaction to all of this information that's at us uh, 100% of the time. So I just wanted to quickly start off the episode by saying if you do enjoy this episode, please do hit subscribe and leave us a review as well if you can. Um, it definitely goes a long way. Well, let's go and look back at the week that was. The week that was. All right, so in the week that was, we're going to do a quick COVID-19 update just to give you the, the latest as at um, today, which is the 13th of April. Um, looking, we're going to start with South Africa. And South Africa had a quite a, a big announcement the last couple of days, Chad. Uh, the lockdown has been extended. <laughs> so Cyril came to speak to the nation. And uh, unfortunately, our 21-day lockdown has become a 35-day lockdown with yeah. the lockdown extended towards the end of the month. So as far as South Africa is concerned, uh, the country's going to be shut down until the end of April. And then from the 1st of May, we'll start looking at what does a, a, a new way forward look like if yeah. the lockdown does, doesn't get extended further. And so I think this was, was coming. I, I think everyone expected it. I think that we haven't had enough tests going on around the country to actually have a good sense of what's happening. Um, if you look at our numbers on day-to-day, -day, they simply don't make sense. They seem too good to be true in yeah. some instances. And so people are very happy with how things have gone so far but also trying not to be complacent about the fact that we haven't done enough tests to have a real sense of what's going on. So I think the extra 14 days are going to be used to try and roll out some of the mass testing they've been talking about to try and see if we can get a couple hundred thousand tests done around the country so that we can make sure our data is accurate and that we actually know what's going on. Once we have that accurate data, then we'll be in a better position to judge when this lockdown can end and when we can get back to work. Now, obviously, it's best case scenario, but I mean, assuming that the data that is currently out there and those figures that are currently out there is correct and accurate, um, do you think this will be the end of it for South Africa? Definitely not, right? So I think this is very important to, to note is that this is a long-term fight. Yeah. I think a lot of the research that I've been seeing is that potentially our lockdown has just pushed the peak of the virus in South Africa much later. So we're about to go into winter in a month or two, and so that's when we're going to have real struggles, I think, because you're going to have the additional like, kind of weight of the flu and the normal influenza on top sure. of it. 
Um, and so some of the research I've been seeing are saying that the peak might be in like August, September, like that late in the year. Okay. So I think it's a good step right now. We've, we've done our best to kind of manage it as best we can. I don't think we've won by any stretch of the imagination. I think this is going to be a fight for the next couple of months. Um, but at least we've given ourselves some time to figure out what life might look like and to get as many tests and whatnot into the country. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely is a good thing. I did watch uh, a part of that briefing from uh, the President Cyril Ramaphosa myself, and I certainly was impressed again by you know, how composed and also how kind of real he was, I'd say. Um, this was not, you know, putting on any kind of show. He was very sincere, um, you know, very open about the, the challenges that, that everyone's having. And I also found it really interesting how he spoke about the force majeure clauses that a lot of companies are using um, in their contracts. So these are clauses that uh, prevent someone from performing in line with the contract. Um, so essentially when it's these unforeseeable circumstances that ultimately render what you know you have to do in your contract uh, impossible. Um, and so I see a lot of minds have started to enforce these clauses um, and Cyril just really came through and, and said don't do this because it just has a domino effect on the economy. What was your whole thought about him bringing that up in this briefing? I think it's an important thing to bring up because uh, force majeure is one of those things that can really cause havoc because once one person starts to enforce them, like like Cheryl said, it can spread throughout everybody because everyone now feels justified and be able to enforce those things. And when we think about contract law, like contract law is very, very strict and it's very, very close. And force majeure is like one of the only things that might allow you to break contract or breach contract without having to pay damages. Sure. And so it's a it's it's important to make sure that 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 hole is only under very, very serious circumstances can you actually breach that. Um, and if people start taking chances and start trying to justify things based on force majeure, it's going to have an even worse um, effect on the economy. So I think it's a, it was an important thing for him to raise. That being said, I'm sure there are tons of companies who have justification. Sure. I mean, I've been chatting to a lot, a lot of companies around around the country that I'm in, I'm in contact with, and a lot of them are thinking about how do they find ways to get away from those fixed costs or get away from those those kind of contracts that have already kind of signed up for and already delivered on or haven't delivered on yet, how do they make sure they can survive this period? And force majeure might be the way they need to go. So I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that yeah. what he's trying to do is trying to stop those companies who just see this op opportunistically and as an op opportunity to take a chance versus the ones who realistically need to enforce it. And that differential is difficult to define. Absolutely, completely agree there. Now, in terms of something else that we saw this morning actually come through, um, is that one of the, the big companies that is still trading in South Africa, Diskim, um, which, you know, for those listening in the UK side would be comparable to, I'd say, a Boots. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they are now refusing to pay full rent to landlords. Um, I think it's very different um, to say that, you know, it's, it's fair because a lot of companies aren't paying rent or a lot of companies are kind of getting away from their obligations because of the fact that their doors are shut closed. Um, whereas this is a company that is fully operational for all intents and purposes and are still looking to, to cut their costs. Yeah, this one feels like one of those opportunistic ones where they see an opportunity to try and like save some money. And uh, I, I think it's in bad taste, personally. Discam have a huge market share here when it comes to pharmacies and when it comes to medical stuff. And uh, so they really are, I would say, having the majority of those those sales is going to Discam right now when it comes to non-food stuff. Um, and they, their kind of argument is that all the essential services they're selling are much lower profit margins than the non-essentials where they normally right. make their, their high margins. And so that's their kind of reasoning. And because you don't have the foot traffic in those malls, you're only getting people who are going directly to Discam. You're not getting kind of ancillary or supplementary sales. Right. But at the same time, in a, in a country like South Africa where everyone is struggling and some companies are 
are falling apart to then say you're going to try and not pay fair rent while still paying your staff full salaries while still like like operating as usual yeah. it seems it seems a bit off to me and it certainly doesn't leave a good taste in people's mouths like if, if you're a company like that and you've got this great opportunity to really be seen on a, on a great level like helping the country you can, you can like ride on that PR yeah. it seems strange to me you do something like this which really leaves a sour taste in everybody's mouth yeah, it is really strange, and especially because when I was in South Africa, Discam seemed to be a company that was giving back to communities, sponsoring a lot of different events um, in the health space, certainly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly surprised uh, to see this. Now, what else happened uh, this past week in South Africa, Barry? Yeah, so kind of similar to some other examples around the world, we had our first government official breaking the laws of lockdown, and so we right. had to see what happened there. So the South African Minister of Communications, a lady by the name of Stella Indebeni Abrahams, her friend, Mduma Nana, posted a photo of her having lunch with his family at his house right. on Instagram. So they kind of outed themselves, which was very stupid. I don't know why they did that. But obviously the media jumped on that, saying why is she like, leaving her house? Why is she breaking the rules of lockdown? And they tried to spin a crazy story saying that she had gone to his house to pick up masks and pick up um, medical equipment that he had. He was gonna she was going to deliver them to wherever she was going to deliver them to. Um, but that all became a front because there were no photos of the masks. There were no photos of anything else. It was just sure. a photo of her having lunch with his family. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, a very bad showing on her behalf. And Cyril Ramposa called her into his office to try and discuss things. And basically what happened was she was put on two months of special leave, one month paid and one month unpaid for breaking those lockdown regulations. So th there was a little bit of accountability, but a lot of South Africa felt much stronger about it because we've seen normal citizens be locked up and be jailed and, and that kind of stuff yeah. breaking lockdown here in South Africa. So it's strange that you've got someone, well, not strange, I suppose, it, it's to be expected sometimes, sure. that the people in these positions don't don't receive the same sort of punishment as, as normal civilians. And that's a strange one, Chad. Yeah, it really is, especially for all of those people who are, you know, at the nth degree complying with these regulations, uh, you know, to see somebody who is in power, who should be setting a, an example, doing the complete opposite, um, it's hard not to to feel like a bit of a slap in the face. Yeah, and, and also like it's interesting because if we look at it, it hasn't just happened in South Africa, it's actually happened in a few countries. So in New Zealand, their health minister, Dr. David Clark, was demoted from his position because he drove his family down to the beach during oh, lockdown, goodness. right? Or for example, in Scotland, their chief medical officer, which I find crazy, Dr. Yes. Catherine Calderwood, had to resign because she breached lockdown twice by traveling to a holiday home on a different side of yeah. Scotland. So we've seen examples of this around the world and those those government officials faced like real consequences being res having resigned or being demoted from their position. Yep. So it's strange to see only two months of special leave. Um, I was hoping for something stricter. But uh, who knows what actually happened behind the scenes there. Yeah, it's always hard to tell what the actual repercussions are going to be. Um, and especially even if that, you know, one month of unpaid leave actually even happens. Um, you, you never really know, do you? Um, some of the other <laughs> things that happened this week, Barry, talk us through it. Yeah, so I just want to bring up one economic one because we've been chatting about the economic impact on South Africa and talking about where this money is going to come from to try and keep the economy afloat. And we saw the South African Reserve Bank announce a, a big kind of measure from the, on their behalf uh, in the last week looking to try and free up flexibility for banks to extend the amount of loans that they give out. What they did was a little bit technical in nature, but basically what they've tried to do is they've tried to ensure that the banks don't have to hold as much cash as they usually have to do under the SAR requirements. Sure. 
So there's something called the liquidity coverage ratio, Chad. Um, and basically what that shows is how much cash does a bank have to hold in reserve for whatever deposits are on its books. Right. And uh, this is very, very strict in South Africa. South Africa has very tight banking regulations, and we have stricter um, coverage ratios than the rest of the world. So it's very strange, um, kind of unusual for the Saab to kind of relax these. And by relaxing these, what they've done is they've allowed for banks to lend out more money to customers. Right. right. So by, by lowering that reserve ratio, they're allowing more liquid cash for those banks to lend out and hopefully help businesses and consumers that are struggling in this time. And they've kind of put an estimate on it based on the Saab and based on the banks that they are under their mandate. And they reckon they've freed up 540 billion rand worth of potential loans that these banks can now give out to ease our economic burden, right? So that's a really good measure. I think it's a really good kind of um, way to do it. Obviously, that, that cash has to be paid back at some point. So it's not, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a long-term fix. It's not a grant or any of that. But hopefully for the short-term period, it gives people a little bit more breathing room. And hopefully those banks will use that extra loan capacity well and lend out smartly so that we can do the best to, to kind of cover the, the various shortfalls around the world. Absolutely. Well, it's nice to know if, you know, that level was higher than normal anyway. There is a bit of buffer then, I guess, um, in terms of risk, you know, that's taken around the world in terms of setting these liquidity ratios um, to, uh, to actually move a little bit on this. I mean, I have heard of a couple of banks offering sort of interest-free loans for really, really long periods of times, uh, especially for, for businesses. Um, so, you know, it's really, really good to see this kind of thing happening. But like you said, these are loans at the end of the day. Um, but you know, cash is king. And uh, ultimately, I think this will certainly go a long way for, for some people who need it the most. Um, and then I just saw on Instagram, Barry, um, an Easter message that was sent out by Cyril, which seemed really nice and sincere. And the first thing that jumped to my mind, Barry, was when would you have ever seen this from Jacob Zuma? <laughs> yeah, we've seen, we've seen lots of memes in the last two weeks, uh, imagining what this would have been like if we had Jay-Z at the helm. Um, and I think I think Cyril really has um, put himself in a league of his own. I mean, yeah. I didn't expect to be so proud of South African governments when I look at the rest of the world and see some of the leaders around the world who are doing crazy things, mm -hmm. right? So I, I, we, we are very proud of Cyril Ramposo, and I think he's done incredibly well so far. He's really been a calm, clear leader. He's been transparent and honest with his with his people, while also in enforcing very strict lockdowns. Right. So I think it's been really good for the country to see that, and for the ANC, it's been it's it's been a big deal because they've kind of seen a resurgence there and kind of resurgence in um, people trusting the government again yeah. in a way. Right. And so I, I don't know how long it's going to last, but for the moment, so the South African government has really done really well, and Cyril is is the major major force there. And uh, I think everyone is is really thankful that we have him and not Jacob Zuma right now. <laughs> yeah, that is really amazing to see. And, you know, hopefully he can use that newfound optimism and newfound hope in the right way and not kind of squander it when the time comes to actually return back to normal. Now, moving on to the UK, uh, my side of the pond, uh, the deaths have now started to exceed 10,000, which is actually insane. Um, when I start looking at those numbers increasing every day, um, you know, that number is kind of getting closer to the thousand mark, which is an insane number. I even saw this morning that they've started running out of body bags, Barry. How crazy to actually think about that kind of stat. Yeah, it's nuts. It's it's a crazy time right now. And to see the UK and the US going through similar things um, with the lack of resources and like things getting out of control, you only hope that they can get things under control as quickly as possible. Um, hopefully they can follow the lead of Spain and Italy who have started to manage their, their, their outbreaks. Um, but yeah, in the UK, it certainly is a crisis point right now. 
Well, just a quick point of an update from the Prime Minister. Uh, Boris Johnson is now out of hospital, so he was in ICU, um, and it was seeming pretty concerning. Um, so this morning he put out a video thanking all of the NHS workers who saved his life, um, especially the two nurses who looked over him throughout the night, um, where he mentions it could have gone either way. Um, and he actually goes to the point of actually mentioning their names and giving them a very personal thank you, which is really nice uh, to see. And also on the back of that, he's now got this personal experience um, where he can actually put his optimism in the NHS service, which is certainly one way to actually know what's happening on the firing line. Yeah, it's important, I think. Um, it's a really important morale boost for the UK. I think that everyone was worried about Boris. Um, I think if he had passed away, it would have caused a lot of panic in the, in, in the country. Um, so to see him come out and see him in a video and he looks he looks decently well is, is really good. Um, and and, and the, yeah. way, the way he did it was really good as well. So I think Boris Johnson's done really well from this. I think that he, obviously, um, we, we're all glad that he survived and he's, and he's yeah. back in health. Um, but the way that he's come back very, very quickly and been very like honest and open with people is great. Yeah. And uh, hopefully they'll give the, the UK the boost that they need to try and fight this thing properly and get the get out, out of the way. Indeed. Another thing that we spoke about a few weeks ago, Barry, was the uh, the Thursday evening's claps um, of NHS workers. Um, and, you yeah. know, this is seeming to happen every single week. And it's just really just growing and growing. Um, and I can't describe the feeling, to be honest. Um, waiting for sort of eight, eight o'clock is when it happens. Um, and just hearing your street go absolutely bonkers clapping their hands. Um, I was last week actually standing with a pot outside my window and knocking it with a spoon, <laughs> um, which is just fantastic. Um, and such a lot of you know gratitude and, and thanks really from residents, which I think is such a cool tradition. That's amazing. I'm really jealous. I really love to, to be that be in that kind of environment where you can feel that community, right? And um, one of the one of the downsides of living in a, a nice house in the suburbs is that you don't have that like pro close proximity to your neighbours, so you can't do those kinds of things. Sure. But from all my UK friends, they all say exactly the same thing that they find it very moving, and uh, I think it really means a lot. And also, you've inspired people around the world. I think that a lot of countries have taken the UK's kind of lead on this and are doing the similar sort of things for their healthcare workers. So it's an example of how humanity can come together and can show the best of itself in times of struggle and really yeah. like celebrating the people who are putting their lives on the line on those front lines to save lives every single day and what they're going through is crazy so a little bit yeah. of appreciation is the least we can do absolutely definitely agree with you there uh, now moving on to sort of the sports side of this we've obviously chatted about various tournaments that have been cancelled across the world um, and obviously it was kind of a matter of time but Wimbledon have come out and, and cancelled their tournament this year um, which is, you know, certainly, certainly one of those events that everyone looks forward to every year. But Barry, you found a little bit of a fact in terms of their insurance. Uh, that's quite interesting. So do talk us through it. Yeah, so Chad, I'll be honest, this is my favorite story of the last like two or three weeks, to be honest. I absolutely loved it. And it's because I'm a CA and we get trained in risk all the time, Indeed. right? And we get told we're boring, we get told like we're not useful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's why I love a story like this. So basically, Wimbledon is obviously the biggest tennis tournament in the world. I think of the Grand Slams, it, it, I think it is the biggest and the most prestigious. Right. Um, and for it, to, for it to be cancelled is a big deal. Like This is the first time Wimbledon has been cancelled since World War II. So yep. it's, a, it's a really big deal that it got cancelled, um, like a lot of major, other major sporting events. 
But the little tidbit that I found, Chad, was that back in 2002, there was the SARS outbreak, right? So that was the last kind of risk of a global pandemic. And uh, at that point, Wimbledon started paying for pandemic insurance. <laughs> so some clever accountant or financial manager or someone in that organization decided, yep. hold on a minute, maybe we should insure ourselves against a pandemic. And so since 2002, they've been paying $2 million every wow. single year as a premium. Now, I'm sure that $2 million was challenged at every single budget meeting Absolutely. every year because they're yeah. like, why, why are we paying $2 million a month for this? Yeah. Like a pandemic's never going to happen. Like what, 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 are you do, what are you paying this for, right? <laughs> so they've been paying $2 million a year for 17 years. Wow. And all of a sudden, COVID-19 comes out and they stand to receive now $141 million as a payout wow. on this insurance policy. So it's, so it's an example of risk mitigation at its finest. And what may seem like wasted money every single year yep. has now come back and they've managed to mitigate some of their losses. So obviously this doesn't offset all the revenue they were supposed to gain, right? Um, I think the expected revenue was supposed to be $309 million for the year. Okay. Um, but $141 million of that is an amazing way to mitigate some of those losses. And uh, I think it's a fascinating story. I think it really is such a great one as well. Thanks for, for finding that. And you're completely right. In all of these budget meetings, that must have been such a point of contention, especially where, you know, you look at avoidable costs and, and you kind of look at where to kind of improve profitability. And, and insurance is obviously the first part that you look at, at being overinsured. Um, and so, like you said, 14 years down the line, those costs were certainly not lost. But the one thing about Wimbledon this year um, was it was going to be their first year where people could actually register online and apply for tickets on line uh, as opposed to through the post um, so you know I certainly as a, as a London resident was very very excited to to maybe have a bit of a better shot at, at getting uh, some good Wimbledon tickets um, but you know nevertheless we obviously will have to wait for next year so moving on to the US Barry why don't you give us a bit of an update there yeah, so the U.S. is in the midst of the crisis as well. I saw that two days ago they had a day where they had 2,000 deaths, which is absolutely crazy. I think yep. New York is still the epicenter there, and they're already struggling to to meet the numbers that are continuing to grow in the U.S. Um, and so I think they, they realize the seriousness now, and there's a lot of fight against it, and hopefully they'll be able to stabilize their numbers over the coming weeks. What I thought was interesting, we've been chatting about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and what they are trying to do to help with COVID-19, and we heard about they've funded the very first vaccine safety trial, which has now started. So they've got 40 volunteers in this trial, and uh, they've started now to test whether this potential vaccine could be the, the golden bullet we're all looking for. Yep. Interesting. Now, we did chat about this last week, about how he's funding six or seven of these facilities, um, even though maybe only one or two are going to get the breakthrough, but just in terms of you know the time gain versus lives lost, etc. Um, and really interesting to see that this safety trial has started so quickly. Um, for me, I, I certainly was expecting a vaccine to take a bit longer to be ready. Um, but it sounds like these 40 people, um, from the articles that I've read, um, were really, really keen to sort of sign up and had an influx of people that they had to actually screen and decide who they wanted, which is really nice to see. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's important. I think everyone around the world, all the top scientists around the world are all working on this thing. So the quicker we can get things trialed and the quicker we can test things and see what works and what doesn't, the better chance we have of getting it sooner rather than later. It's still going to take months before it gets into the hands of everyday consumers because we have to make sure like a rigorous testing that this is not going to harm people. But um, the quicker the trials start, the quicker we can get to that point. So I think it's great. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned a bit about the U.S. politics last week. Uh, so give us a bit of an update there. 
Yeah, so underneath all this COVID-19 stuff, there's still been a U.S. election race that's happening. And uh, obviously, it's been wildly all over the place because of the virus. But uh, just one piece of news, Bernie Sanders, one of the major candidates that's been up against Trump in the last kind of couple of months, and has really been causing waves with his, what people call democratic socialism, which I think is a terrible term, but that's kind of the unfortunate label was put on his policies. Right. He had to pull out of the U.S. race, unfortunately. Um, even though he had a lot of support, he simply didn't have the funds or the, the enough support to focus him and get him to the end of the race. And so basically what that leaves, Chad, is it leaves a fight between a 72-year-old and a 77-year-old for the President of the United States. <laughs> Donald Trump versus Joe Biden is likely to be the Democratic versus um, Republican matchup. And uh, that, to me, is doesn't sound appetizing at all. I think <laughs> that it leaves the, the race for Trump. I think that Trump will get re-elected if Biden is the opposition because Biden just doesn't seem to have the energy or the the wherewithal to kind of right. take on this job um and so yeah chad i think we're going to see another four years of trump unfortunately well i wonder if he's going to put out that iconic tweet that obama did um another four years we know how trump loves twitter um except in <laughs> a very different context um, but yeah we'll have to see when it gets to that let's move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting so we started talking about David Attenborough and how he was starting to talk about sustainability, um, especially given his credentials. Barry, you've had a bit of a watch of some of his new series. What are some of the things you've seen? Yeah, so I love David Attenborough and the kind of wildlife documentaries he puts out are absolutely amazing. So when I found out he had a new one out, I was all over it. So his new series is currently showing on, on the BBC right now and so I'm watching it week by week. It's a series called Seven Worlds, One Planet. And basically the idea is that every single part, so there's seven parts of the series, every part is focusing on one continent, right? So the first one was on Antarctica, the second one was on Asia and then it goes on and on and on from there. Right. And uh, the major theme, Chad, like you say, is looking at climate change, but it's looking at it in the way that it's affecting animals. So what people know David Attenborough for is that yeah. amazing wildlife footage with his like amazing baritone kind of voiceover <laughs> on top of it uh, narrating what's going on. And yeah. this is exactly that. It's like a classic David Attenborough. It's amazing footage. So National Geographic footage, like really, really amazing stuff showing animals in, in that you've probably never heard of, showing animals in ways you've never seen and really like showing you incredible moments of animal interaction. That, that almost seem alien in some way. I mean, I remember watching these two squid fights underwater, <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? Like, if, you, if you didn't know those animals, you'd be convinced they were aliens, right? Um. I remember I watched penguins being chased by seals. I watched like all sorts of amazing <laughs> stuff. And uh, the footage is just so cool because it, it just shows you the, the kind of the diversity in the world. So seeing how many different types of animals and plants there are in the world and seeing them in their, in their color, seeing them like close up, yeah. seeing how they, how they work and kind of learning a bit about them. I found it immensely valuable. And what happens is that you watch that for 40 minutes and you're like really enjoying the kind of the drama of it and all the, the nice scenery and whatnot. Yeah. And then he starts to sneak in these, these, <laughs> these digs at society because right. of climate change. He starts right. to talk about how climate change is affecting these guys and how it's affecting the diversity, it's affecting ecosystems around the world and it really makes you think about how important these ecosystems are to the rest of the world how valuable these rare species are and why aren't we doing enough to keep them alive chad 
Absolutely. And it's such a profound message um, to be coming through from someone like David Attenborough. And especially if it's kind of complemented with all of that incredible footage and that incredible um, you know, production value that he provides. An important, important message, one that we've been chatting about for quite a lot. And even if it can kind of just get somewhere into the subconscious to change our, our patterns and change our, our habits um, and hopefully you know, can actually have a bit of a domino effect across the world and you know, how we're actually damaging this planet and how we're actually you know, accelerating climate change. Um, which one was the one that you've enjoyed the most out of that seven-part series? I think for me, Antarctica I've enjoyed the most simply because it's so foreign there. And that, right. le- that legit is an alien wasteland. Like the kind <laughs> of stuff there is absolutely unbelievable. Okay. And so there's so few species that can actually survive that weather and can survive the amount of cold and the amount of ice there that the kinds of species that do survive are just fascinating by nature. And so I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and it, it really, the, kind of the scenery and cinematography in, in Antarctica is out of this world. It really is out of this world. And yeah. so... I think I enjoy that the most. But to be honest, everyone is, is enjoyable for its own reasons. So like you, you get to see different pieces of each, each continent and uh, it almost allows you to travel from your home. You kind of feel like you're there because the, the cinematography is so good and the footage is so amazing yeah. that it allows you to travel throughout the world and see what's going on even though you're sitting in your house in Joburg or in London or wherever you are. <laughs> That's amazing. I definitely need to go and check them out. I have no doubt they'll be on the BBC iPlayer, so I must definitely go and have a look at them. And that's actually one of the reasons why I brought up Disney Plus the other day is because of the Disney nature uh, documentaries that they have as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly a, a great way to, to spend an afternoon just having a look at, you know, everything that is not you and your sort of bubble that you live in um, which is fantastic now moving on to the next one obviously barry you are the ai guy um, (laughs) and i actually saw this story when it happened a few years ago and you know for a lot of people in this space um, it was it was definitely a changing moment uh, the moment where an ai system kind of beats a a professional at at a board game now talk us through the documentary Uh, this is called AlphaGo. i'm certainly looking forward to hearing about this one yeah, so Chad, like, like you say, in the AI community, this is a very well-known story, and it was a huge deal when it happened. But it's one yeah. of those things that if you're outside of the community, you simply didn't care, and you didn't understand why it mattered <laughs> so much, because it was just a board game, right? And so I sit here today surprised that I'm now recommending a documentary about a board game. Like, that doesn't sound exciting to people, but I promise you this documentary is incredible. Basically, the story was, um, AlphaGo was the story of a Google DeepMind kind of project. So Google DeepMind is probably the the leading AI company in the world right now. They're doing some of the most um, cutting-edge research, and they have some of the brightest minds working for them. And they developed this, this computer program called AlphaGo that was trying to beat the world's best player in the game of Go. So Go, Chad, is the oldest board game in existence, as far as I know. It comes from right. ancient China. Um, and it's a it's a really fascinating game that we never we don't really play in the Western world. So in the Western world, it's very very um, under underrated and kind of not played by many people. But if yep. you go to China, if you go to Singapore, if you go to Korea, etc., it's everywhere there. That's kind of their main board game. It's kind of the the Eastern equivalent of chess, if I put it that way. So in, in the okay. way that chess is revered in the Western world, it's seen as a game for smart people. It's seen as a very intellectual game. It's seen as an important game in kind of the the, the culture here. In the East, that's yep. what goes in like. 
And what makes Go so difficult and so challenging is that it's way more, it's way harder than chess in a way because there are way more possible configurations of the board. So the board is much bigger and you have white and black pieces like in most board games, but there are more possible configurations of that board than there are atoms in the universe. So that gives you a sense of how many possible configurations you can have. In chess, there obviously are like trillions of configurations, but because the pieces are in certain positions and there's kind of double pieces yeah. and whatnot, there are much less configurations. So theoretically, there's, there's less ways a board can look. In right. Go, you, s you simply have infinite. It's basically infinite, right? And so why, why that's important is that traditional software programs, so when they started to try and build programs to beat chess and to beat poker and those sorts of games, they have a finite number of moves. And so yeah. you can, if you have enough computing power, you can just brute force it. You can just try every single move and run that yeah. out to the end of the game and then pick the one that's going to be best. And so that was a much easier task for AI because all you need is a lot of computing power and you can do it. It's just brute force. There's nothing magical there. With Go, you can't do that because you just don't have enough computing power to do it. So you had to build real AI systems that could try and learn about the game and learn how the game is played and then play it against a human competitor. So this documentary follows that journey and it follows a journey that culminates in kind of the, the, the last little effort to try and prove this thing works and that was to beat the world champion. So the world champion is a guy called Lee Sudol who's from Korea. And he's known as the best Go player of all time. He has 18 world championships. Wow. <laughs> 18 <laughs> world championships, which Insane. is absolutely mad. And ever since this AlphaGo thing, he hasn't lost a single game. So this, this documentary came out in 2017. In the three years, he hasn't even lost a game. So he just kind of wow. wipes the whole world of this game. He's like an absolute genius. And he's seen mm. as a superstar in Korea. I think what I didn't realize until I watched the documentary was that when you go to Korea, his name is everywhere. He's like he's wow. known as a proper rock star there wow. uh, because the game is so important. And so when this kind of this group of people from the UK and from around the world from Deep Mind trotted along to Korea to go and, to go and play this guy, it was huge news in Korea, whereas no one even cared about it here in the Western world, right? <laughs> and so he goes, they go to Korea and they sit down and they play this epic best of five match against the best player in the world. And I'm not going to spoil it for you because I want you to go and watch the documentary as how, how right. it pans out. But what I found fascinating about it was that when you watch this human kind of fighting for all humans against this machine, <laughs> it sets up this like epic like science right. fiction type battle, right? And uh, it, it really is so much more than just a board game. It's kind of looking at what does the future of AI look like? How is it going to impact on our humanity? So when our humanity can't operate a certain task or gets overtaken by a computer, yeah. what does it do to psychology and what does it do to kind of the way we think about our species? And you watch this world champion go through all of these emotions while he's playing against his computer. Um, and it really is a really fascinating look at what AI is potentially going to do to the world and what it means for our humanity. So I would recommend it, Chad, and it's way more than just a board game. So don't get put <laughs> off by that. No, I'm definitely not put off and I'm I'm really, really keen to go and, and see it now that there is a documentary on it. Like I said, I took quite a big interest in the story when it when it broke out, um, you know, how, however many years ago. Um, but really nice that now there's a documentary that summarizes everything um, that you can actually go and, and watch and kind of get up to speed. Um, in terms of the Google DeepMind um, series, is there any sort of developments in terms of recent times? Obviously, this happened in 2017. What are some of the newer things that, that have come about since this monument? mental shift 
Yeah, so I mean, a lot has happened in three years. So AlphaGo is like old news by now and algorithms moved way past where AlphaGo right. used to be. So kind of the latest one that they did in this kind of theme was something called AlphaZero, which was exactly the same idea, trying to beat the best uh, player in the world at Go. Right. Um, but in this case, they didn't tell the machine anything. So in AlphaGo, they tell the machine how the board works, how the pieces okay. move, how to score points, etc. With AlphaZero, the idea was they were not going to tell it anything and it was going to learn to play by itself. So it's an even more right. incredible feat of machine learning and artificial intelligence because it wasn't given any parameters, it wasn't given any past games, it wasn't given any like advice at all. And uh, that's how, and, and it's, it's still managed to outperform even AlphaGo at, at that time. Okay. So that, that's one example. But DeepMind has got their, f their fingers in a thousand different pies, and they really do have a, a, f a stranglehold over the future of AI right now because of their, their dominance in the field. And uh, you're seeing lots of people trying to take on video games, trying to take on first-person shooters, trying to take on various other things where there's more randomness or where there's yeah. more reflex needed or whatever the story is, as opposed to a I move, you move, I move, you move type game. Right. And so I think games, games provide a great fertile ground for us to test these theories and test how AI works yep. um, before we start putting them onto more important systems in our world, right? But that's definitely coming down the pike. There's lots, there's lots to look forward to. Oh, fantastic stuff. I uh, really just love listening to the, the passion and enthusiasm that Barry brings to this topic. Um, always really good to listen to. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Should we move on to our next segment, Barry? Let's look ahead. Looking ahead. So looking ahead, this is where we look to, uh, I suppose, technology as well and, and kind of see where the world is going. Um, I saw this past week that Google released a report basically just showing a bit of data and you know how our lives have changed since we've gone into lockdown. Um, but the interesting thing here for me is where they got that data from. So we've spoken about Google before. We've spoken about their various apps and their various kind of offerings. Um, and one of those is obviously you know using location history tracking. So I can ask a couple of my friends where they were in a particular day, however many years back, and they can pull up their phone and literally look at a 24-hour um, you know, tracking of where they were, what they were doing, how long they spent at each particular place, if they drove, which route they took, et cetera, et cetera, which you know, for a lot of people does sound insane, and I'm certainly on that, uh, that side as well. But uh, basically, they've used any of the people who have opted in for this location history tracking um, to actually look at you know, whether people are actually changing their their behaviors. And so we spoke last week about the fantastic weather that London had, uh, you know, that weekend. So what they've actually come out and released in this report um, is that in Greater London, the visits to parks were down only 15% compared to life before the lockdown. Um, and so for me, that is a really worrying stat. You know, obviously, Barry, we had this chat about the people who are not following the rules, etc. Um, and, you know, that for me is just showing you, it's the data that really just shows uh, that people are not kind of taking this as seriously as they should um, but also you know on the sort of data part it's really interesting that google are kind of publishing reports with these people's data in it obviously not at a sort of individual level um, but i certainly found this interesting nevertheless yeah i think so i think one of the most fascinating debates that has come out of this virus is is looking at what is the impact of surveillance on public health right so are we able to get a sense of what's going on because of this data and does it give us a better chance of fighting the disease if we have realistic information about what's actually going on so it's very easy to look at anecdotes and say oh look the streets look empty or look this looks yeah. empty or people seem to be following the lockdown but hard data like this might show 
show a different story. And especially when we look at China, we're looking at on, on, on Asia, like a lot of surveillance there, which is obviously different ethical codes to the Western yeah. world. They've used that surveillance to great effect to try and isolate the hotspots, isolate where things are going wrong, yeah. isolate where things are going right, and then acted on that behalf. So I think it's interesting. I think that we're going to see a lot of debate going forward as to whether surveillance is the secret like key to unlock some of the, the benefits and whether we can actually use it to fight this virus. And the trade-off between that and privacy, again, so talking about yeah. do, do people know they are sharing that data? I, 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 would, I would guess that 90% of those people don't know they have location tracking on. Yeah. They probably have no idea, right? Yeah. And so even though it's opt-in, theoretically, a lot of people just don't realize what they're giving their permission to. So I think we all have to take charge of our own data and think carefully about our own um, kind of permissions. But yeah. on a macro level, as a society, how much do we value privacy versus being able to tackle a virus like this that actually kills people? 100%. Um, and that's that's the ultimate debate, isn't it? Um, just in terms of that, that privacy and knowing what you're actually um, you know, providing to these companies, I have certainly opted out for that. Um, but yet, uh, I'll take a photo at a particular location, and I'll get a push notification from Google saying, "Why don't you show other people what it's like here?" And I'm like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> Which is insane. Just how many toggle switches you actually have to go through and review. No, it's it's madness, and and that's one of the big criticisms of these big companies is that it's so onerous to look after your own privacy because, like you say, there are ten thousand different options, and they're continually pressuring you to try and like share your data with them because that's what they feed off. It's like a, it's like a monster feeding on data, and they just want you to feed it more and more and more. Yeah. And so you got to be strong, and you got to fight against that, and you got to realize what matters to you. Like, does privacy matter to you? And if so, you you're in for a tough ride because you've got a lot of work to do to make sure you don't share that stuff. Absolutely. Well, keeping on this topic. Uh, um, we've now seen an announcement come out from the, the two big giants, uh, Google, which we just mentioned, and of course, Apple as well. Um, basically, in a first unprecedented collaboration um, to kind of help with contact tracing uh, on COVID-19, um, which is certainly, certainly interesting to see. I never thought I'd see it, Chad. I thought I'd live my entire life with Google and Apple fighting it out to yeah. the death, never never acknowledging each other, never allowing each other's apps on each other's platforms. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, this virus has brought them together, which is amazing. And so it looks like they're going to be opening their APIs to each other to allow interoperability between iOS ecosystem, which is Apple's mobile ecosystem, and then Android, which is on all Google's phones, right? Yeah. And uh, hopefully allowing those public health authorities around the world to really gather data and to use the those apps on a more kind of standardized level. So you don't want someone's phone to be the reason they can't get access to important documentation or important yeah. information, or you don't want the reason, you're on a phone to be the reason that you can't get the right data. And so this is a great way to ensure that all those data are standardized and the public health authorities can get what they need. Yeah. Um, but I never thought I'd see it happen, Chad. Obviously it requires extraordinary circumstances. <laughs> well, definitely. And uh, I mean, I, I'm keen to see what that exactly means. So is it only these kind of health-related API sort of interactions or does this open up wider interaction? You know, like Barry was mentioning his frustration of not being able to get Google Maps on his Apple Watch. Um, you know, does this kind of open the door for those types of uh, integrations or is this kind of specific uh, to this coronavirus? Um, and, you know, in terms of the specifics there, um, this Bluetooth-based contact tracing platform, tell us a bit about this. So as far as I read from that, uh, if you go to the shops, you've got your Bluetooth on, they know a particular user has the virus um, and essentially you'll then get a notification to say that you are close to somebody who had it. Is, is that sort of what this does? 
Yeah, so it's all very shrouded in secrecy right now, so no one exactly knows, but I think that's the idea. I think the idea is to use some sort of geotagging to understand where a potential um, person who has the virus has been in the past or in the future and try to use that to kind of trace whoever he comes into contact with. Right. So as far as I understand, once they find someone with the virus, they'll then look at their history and look at how that phone has, has moved around the city to get a better sense of where the potential risk areas are. Right. Um, but at this stage, it's all speculation. All they've announced is that they're going to allow these things to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, and how exactly that's going to work, I'm not sure right now. And I'm not sure if they're going to announce that publicly either yep. because again there's lots of concerns here about security and privacy so sure. who knows if they're actually going to let people know what the underlying tech looks like um, but the basic understanding from my side is that the public health authorities will be able to get access to more accurate real-time data to help them fight against this thing interesting and uh, certainly a move forward so glad to see that but let's move on develop and grow so we're at the self-improvement bit of the podcast, uh, just where we try to kind of tick that notch a little bit further on ourselves and try and you know get a bit better um, at every single aspect of our lives. Now, last week I mentioned I had started with the Star Wars series, um, and I'm happy to report that I've now completed uh, the first three episodes. Um, and I actually just pulled out this one quote from uh, you know the the legendary Yoda, uh, <laughs> the little green man who's has a walking stick, but is incredibly powerful with the lightsaber. Quite a <laughs> tricky one to kind of, you know, wrap that around your head. Um, but, you know, his quote in this one was, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Um, and so this kind of just starts, for me, a wider discussion about attachment um, and, you know, how we actually attach ourselves to, to things in life. Um, physical things, but also people. Also places, also you know jobs, etc., etc., etc. And so uh, this is just that wider conversation about attachment. Um, and I actually came across another um, fantastic article the other day, which had this metaphor that things are just the play-doh of a life. Um, and and like I said, that just that includes physical things as well as people, etc., etc. And so if you kind of approach everything and are grateful for the time you have enjoying something, are grateful for um, you know the things that you have, and kind of view them as you have them on loan, uh, you know, they're not yours, don't get attached to them. Um, that's kind of what I saw from this. Um, and for me, a really cool little quote from that little green man. Yeah, he, he really is a <laughs> philosopher of our time, some would say, right? <laughs> and uh, he, he, some of the quotes that he has are, are kind of etched in all our memories and um, based on uh, ba based on the Star Wars movies and based on kind of the impact that that, that had on our culture. And so I, I really love this idea. It, it kind of, it, it harks to me of an ancient Buddhist idea, like the, yep. that idea that you're not going to be attached to things and you're going to focus on on the more intangible things that actually matter, right? I think that so many of us uh, get caught up with um, the scoreboard of life. So yep. how much money do we have in the bank? How big is our house? What car do we have? Etc. Yep. etc. Et because we play, we play these status games with one another. We want to be seen to be cool. We want to be seen to be hip or successful or whatever yep. we care about and often those those things are ways of showing other people these things we, they, we want them to think about us right yep. but at the end of the day those things don't actually matter i mean one of the one of the tragic things about humanity is that this time is fleeting your time here on this earth is fleeting and those things will disappear you will lose loved ones you will lose things you like things will go wrong you'll you'll yep. 
you'll lose positions you you and and things will happen to you right and so the more you're holding on to those and you kind of attach your personality and your identity to those things the more you're going to struggle in those down periods yep. and uh, so it's one of ancient wisdom's greatest like gifts to us is trying to remind us that materialism and things are not important what's more important is our character and our virtues and how we treat each other and uh, hopefully that's that's something we're taking very seriously in this quarantine time Exactly. And I love the fact that the quote starts with train yourself um, because that is the ultimate here is that, you know, there is no kind of, you know, black and white. You, you can get from the one to the other um, by just by just doing that, that work and, and kind of doing that, that training, um, which is which is cool. Um, and then in terms of the next thing, I just wanted to chat about um, the idea of during this time, sharing optimism and encouragement. Um, if ever there is a time, now is the time that, that people need it the most. So I, this morning, woke up and had this amazing interaction with the, with the YouTuber who's, um, you know, kind of on the way up. I think he's got about 15,000 subscribers. Um, and his content is fantastic. It's absolutely amazing. But for some reason, his videos are just kind of not, you know, ticking above the, the, the sort of thousand views mark. Um, and so, yeah, I just left this amazing message of optimism and encouragement um, and, and you know, his response that, that I got back from it as well was just so, so warming. Um, and, you know, I actually, I don't know why we don't enter into these interactions every single day um, because, you know, it, it just, it just makes us feel better. Um, and, you know, for him as well, you know, he now is starting his day on, on the right foot. Yeah, it's undeniably Im impressive and kind of important that in these yeah. times when we seem to be at our worst and things seem to be going really wrong is to share that optimism because like you say, it, it helps your physiology. It makes you feel better physically. It's not just yeah. a nice words, right? It actually yeah. changes your state. And if we can be that for other people, we really are doing our parts. I think optimism and encouragement is so contagious. And if you're able yeah. to encourage someone else, they get into a position where they can then pass that on to somebody else. Exactly. And so I think for all of us... Um, the more we stay optimistic and the more we stay hopeful in this time, the better we're going to feel and the better we're going to be there for the people around us. If we have enough of us doing that, we can spread that throughout the entire population and give us the energy to fight this thing. Um, I think yep. that's really important right now. Absolutely. Well, hopefully you take some of that stuff on and, uh, you know, we kind of just uh, go on and, and become better people after this whole lockdown situation. Now, let's hear from you. Uh, this is our last segment of the podcast. What's on your mind? So today we've got quite a few questions, which is fantastic to see. Um, and we even have a few voice notes. Let's start off with the first one. Uh, this one is from Rashil. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for your question, Rashil. Hey, Brad. I just actually wanted to ask about the international travel and how it's going to be impacted, obviously, with COVID-19. Uh, just with regard to once everything settles down, how are they implementing any changes, obviously, going forward? Yeah, so I mean, this is kind of, I suppose, the, the natural question we ask um, about life after lockdown is, you know, what's going to happen to international travel? When are we going to actually start scaling it up again? And, and, and how is that going to work? Do you have any sort of thoughts on this, Barry? I've been trying to figure out what I think about this, and I don't actually know what I think. Um, it's it's a fight in my head between the idea that I think international travel is going to really struggle coming out of this period yeah. in the short term. Number one, because a lot of companies are going to die, and so a lot of travel companies are just aren't going to be around to kind of yep. supply some of those services, which means costs will go up and etc. And, and and that's not good for for people traveling. The second thing is that I think travelers themselves will be very wary about traveling in the next couple months. I yep. think even if you were planning on a nice trip, a nice honeymoon, etc., you might be you might be thinking about that twice. You might be yeah, thinking yeah. very carefully about your decision right and so i think that's another reason that things are going to struggle in the short term but the other part of my mind is that 
humans forget things really quickly. <laughs> we yeah. really do forget very quickly. And so I wonder in a few months' time if we manage to stabilize some of these numbers, yeah. if life goes back to normal quicker than we expect. And so those are the two like fighting things in my mind. I don't know where I stand, Chad. Um, I certainly hope things go back to normal quite quickly, but we have to be careful about opening those borders. I think every country is going to deal with it differently. So who knows what's going to happen? What do you think? Yeah, it's it's that debate, just like you had um, in terms of you know both of those sides of the argument, and it, it's tricky. Um, I know people who are stuck in in certain countries. I know uh, people who live in London that are stuck in South Africa, um, and obviously you know you guys have that uh, strong lockdown um, where there's literally no planes up in the sky, which is you know really really interesting to see. Um, but then the natural question of when that starts sort of loosening up. Um, I certainly think it's interesting, like you said, uh, a lot of these airlines have had to ground flights because the demand is just kind bottomed out um and and that you know was even before some of these travel lockdowns that happened um so like you say human behavior is an interesting one but i mean at the same point i think all of us are longing for an amazing sort of summer holiday um you know after all these periods <laughs> in lockdown it's hard not to go back to all your photos and look at those great times where you were traveling somewhere um, especially now with me looking at you know all of my vlogs that i haven't edited from from back in november um, I, I certainly can't wait um, to the day where we can actually start traveling again. So I don't know either, um, but, you know, we'll, I suppose we'll have to see how each country sort of handles it, um, you know, based on potentially which country is worse affected uh, at the end of this. Um, really interesting. Moving on to the next one. This is a question from Ray again. Thanks for your question. Chado, how's it, brother? With um, lockdowns and people being isolated to their homes, it seemed that the huge uptake in, in people getting tech savvy. What's interesting to note is people who are generally not tech strong, like myself, there seems to be this huge rush just to understand and get on top of different platforms that we can, for example, myself host virtual classrooms, you know, just a whole bunch of questions around different mics and sound setups and um, so, so that's quite interesting to see how non-tech people have actually risen to the occasion uh, where previously we would have been like, ugh, we'll just get someone to do it or, you know, we'll do it later. Cool. Thanks for the question, Ray. Um, yeah, I mean, given this time, we all need to kind of accelerate ourselves and on our tech savvy level. Um, certainly interesting to see that, you know, people are starting to learn new things and ask questions. We spoke about this last week, Barry, um, just in terms of, you know, world 1.0 and world 2.0 and, you know, the, the values of the symbols of suits, etc. and now sound like, like Ray mentioned in his question, um, which, which is interesting. I, I certainly think now is the time for, for people to start, um, you know, showing a bit of an interest if tech wasn't, uh, you know, an interesting thing for you previously. I think people are now starting to see some of the values um, of you know the world that we're living in and how some of this infrastructure can actually change our day-to-day -day lives, um, so, which I think is a, is a fantastic thing, and uh, and I think it's it's kind of going to slowly shift the needle, um, which otherwise would have taken a little bit longer organically. Yeah, I agree with that. I think and my answer is biased because obviously, Chad, you and I are huge tech fans and we are all <laughs> over the stuff. Um, but I do, I honestly believe that tech is crucially important for every single industry and for every part of our lives. And so if this is the nudge that gets people to take it more seriously and, and really upskill themselves, and this is fantastic. Yeah. I think this is inevitable, right? Tech is, is bleeding into every single part of our lives. And so the more you upskill yourselves and the better you understand 
understand how things are working, the more relevant you're going to be and the better you're going to be able to succeed in the, in the years to come. And so I think it's a great opportunity, like, like, like Ray says, is to take this time and use it to try and figure out those things that you maybe have been too embarrassed to ask about or you're too embarrassed to learn about or maybe you're out of your comfort zone. This is a great chance now to jump on a YouTube video or to phone a friend or yeah. do something and ask those questions and, and learn those bits and pieces that's going to give you the best possible chance to be relevant in the years to come. This train is not stopping. This train <laughs> is continuing, right? And so you either decide to jump on yep. and kind of claw your way onto the train Definitely. or you let it go past. And that's how I see it. Completely agree. And the more that we actually know how to use tech and, and make it work for us, especially with the, the dawn of the fourth industrial revolution, um, you know, where we can actually control those inputs and control the way that, you know, tech is actually working for us. Um, I think taking an interest now is the perfect time to do it. Um, then we got some different questions, which uh, came out from my Instagram ask question. But let's go and have some fun, Barry. Um, the first one is from Anton Bredow. And the question is, which of your five senses is your strongest? You first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was hoping you were going to go first, Chad. <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer this question. When, when I saw it on the notes, I was like, how, I don't know, how do I answer this? Um, my, my gut instinct is to say my eyes, my eyesight. Right. Um, I, I don't know why. I don't have a good reason <laughs> for it. I think, that, I think the fact that I'm not a foodie, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't think my, my taste or my smell is, is, is the greatest because I, yeah. I don't really care about food and that kind of stuff as much as some other people. I think for me, my eyes is what, is what I really care about. Um, and my only kind of justification is that I read a lot and I love, yeah. I love using my eyes to, to take in information. So that's my best guess at an answer. What do you reckon, Chad? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be doing exactly the same as you. Um, also my eyes. Uh, I'd say followed second by my ears. Um, but eyes also for the reason of, of video. Um, you know, I'm I'm very, very passionate about video and very passionate about photography. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just not having that sense for me would dramatically change my life. Um, second, as I said, to, to ears um, from, from music and, you know, how music can change any kind of mood, how music can, you know, just make you feel so much more and also accompanied by, by good visuals um, just makes an amazing, amazing uh, combo. Like you, I'm also not much of a foodie um, in terms of touch, you know, I, I don't typically go around feeling textures of things. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at as well. Um, the last question is one from uh, Instagram handle tabs to travel um, in which they ask, which actor would you like to portray your life? Oh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one <laughs> um, because I often do see my life as a movie in, in some of my, hey. good, my good moments. I like to imagine that movie. Um, I think I'm going to go with Bradley Cooper, Chad, nice. um, because obviously his, his incredible good looks, which is, is obvious, obvious. Um, but also <laughs> the way the way that he acts. Uh, I, I, I love all of his movies and I love the way he tackles tackles a biographical kind of story. Like what, what sticks in my mind is that movie Limitless about that guy yeah. who takes that pull and kind of the character development he sees in that movie. And for, for some reason, that kind of sticks in my brain. And so I would yeah. say Bradley Cooper. Cool. Um, on my side, I'm probably going to go with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Now, I know I'm, you know, a couple of years younger, <laughs> but um, I kind of like the, you know, the Iron Man series. And, uh, and obviously, I'm quite a gadget head myself. Also, thoroughly enjoy his humor as well. Um, and so, yeah, it would really, really be cool to see him uh, illustrating my life as well, um, which, which could be quite, quite funny and quite fun to watch. <laughs> um, but interesting questions. And uh, thanks for sending them through. So that brings us to the end of another episode, Barry. Uh, this one was pretty cool. Spoke quite a lot about tech and AI. Um, certainly both of our 
you know, favorite talking points, um, which is quite enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. 23 in the can. Um, I, I think it's good to have a little bit of a break from the COVID heavy content. I hope you guys are taking yeah. care of yourselves and hopefully we're giving you a little bit different to think about in the midst of this time. Um, but otherwise, hope you're staying safe and sane. And thank you, as always, for listening. Absolutely. Well, we'll see you again next week. And thank you for tuning in to Across the Pond. Oh, 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 oh